Welcome to In the Wake with Whitley. Here on this podcast, we cover mental health, life lessons, mindset growth, and tons of storytelling. Together, we'll laugh, we'll cry, and everything in between. I'm your host, Whitley Rogers. I'm a certified life coach and mental health advocate. I'm also a survivor of sexual and mental abuse. I'm here to open up those conversations that are normally uncomfortable or hush-hush in society. Keep listening for bits and pieces of my personal journey and insights along with other interviewees. All right, here with me this week, I have Jody. She is doing amazing work. She has done a TEDx talk. She does counseling. She's written a book. She has a new one coming out soon, which is super exciting and has done some courses. And so today we're going to talk about anxiety. And I'll let Jodi introduce herself a little bit further. So who are you and what's your story? Well, I have so many stories, I guess, to make up. When you get to this age, you don't know what story to tell first. (laughs) Well, I've been a family therapist for over 20 years. And so I've kind of gotten to know people really well. I get to hear all the secrets. I also struggled with my own emotional turmoil that leads a lot of us to be helpers when we've had our own experience in life. And so I was an anxiety sufferer myself and I cured myself 100%. I now in my practice, I've helped other people over time. So I work with children and teenagers, adults. I work with couples to really help all kinds of families do better and support each other and be emotionally healthy. That's amazing work and it's so needed. Thank you. So can you describe what a day with anxiety looks and feels like? Maybe for someone who's never experienced that before. People experience it in so many different ways. So it's a hard problem because people are like, do I have anxiety or is this just regular nervousness? And so it could look like anything under the sun, actually. It's, it could be resistance. It could be nervousness. It could be embarrassment. It also looks like your mind hooked on something. It feels like panic attacks. It could feel like not wanting to do stuff or being unmotivated or feeling stuck. So it could look like so many different problems and really get in the way of our potential. Yeah, for sure. What has your own anxiety journey looked like? I started having anxiety when I was just five years old. So I was coming home from, it was President's Day weekend and we were at a father-daughter event and we were learning about the presidents. And on the way home in the car, I asked my dad, where are the presidents now, daddy? I was just five. And his face got really pale and his neck got really long. And he said, they're dead. And Mm -hmm. I was like, what's dead? And he said, you fall asleep and are not alive anymore. It was like the first I understood like duality, that there's pain and suffering. So that scared the heck out of me. Like, None of the security felt secure anymore because it could be lost in a moment, right? Anything that I knew, I just started crying and my mom came to the door and I was just a mess. And I really, I couldn't be alone for weeks and weeks and had trouble sleeping. You know, my mom had to read a story and as soon as it ended, I would start to get nervous and she'd have to start another story till I was so exhausted. I just fall asleep finally. So I really struggled with the dark. I struggled with going to sleep. I struggled with scary movies. I had lots and lots of panic attacks. I lost like a third of my body weight at that time. And there were several times in my life, the next 20 years 
where those symptoms came on really big and I had a lot of panic attacks and couldn't eat. And it wasn't until my mid twenties when I figured out how to get rid of it for good. And now I teach other people. Wow. That is so amazing that you were able to relieve yourself of all of that anxiety. After so long, they think that there's a lot of discourses on mental health and anxiety, especially in, they come from mental health professionals, unfortunately, that if you have anxiety, that's something you just have to maintain or live with forever that quote, you never really get rid of it. I think that's the worst message that we put out there for people then you have these expectations and you don't take action to really get rid of it because you think that you can't. Right. Five years old, that is so young to be struggling with such heavy, big things. I can't Yeah, but a lot of our kids are nowadays, don't you think? Yeah. The kids younger and younger and our teenagers are really struggling right now. Most Mm. of them have anxiety, depression, they're they're having all sorts of problems. And so they really need our help. We don't want to give like half the teenagers say, you just have anxiety. You're just wired that way. That's not true. It's coming from our culture. The fact mm-hmm. that there's more and more kids having this problem should tell us that it's not a medical problem. It's a cultural problem that we could fix. We want to give the kids the message that this is not something they'll have forever. I think that's so important, especially right now with what's happening in the world and COVID and the pandemic and being quarantined. I know a lot of people that have maybe never experienced anxiety before are potentially seeing that come up. So what are warning signs or symptoms to look out for when it comes to anxiety, whether that's in kids, teens, adults, what it looked like for yourself? Preoccupation with something negative, like your mind's hooked on some or ruminating on some worry or some problem that's taking a lot of your mental energy. It exhausts you physically. You could have physical symptoms of stress, like when your mind's constricted, your body constricts, and you could have pain. You could have a lot of stomach problems, headaches, just exhaustion. And so there's tons of symptoms of anxiety. Some of the symptoms seem really scary. If you knew it was anxiety, it wouldn't be as scary. Mm-hmm. But we think it's something physical like our heart racing or being out of breath or hyperventilating. We think that there's like a breathing problem, especially right now. That's incredibly scary. Yeah. And so if you're a parent and you want to know if your kids are really struggling, if they're sticking close to you, if they keep asking you the same questions over and over, if they don't want to do things they used to want to do, if they're complaining a lot or pretty irritable, that could be a sign that they're struggling emotionally. It doesn't mean they have an anxiety disorder and a mental illness. It means they could use some strengthening of their emotional health, which we all could use right now, really. For sure. What are the differences between different types of anxiety, like separation anxiety, social anxiety? What does that look like? That's why I say like anxiety looks completely different to everybody because everyone has like a different object that triggers them. Mm -hmm. You know, so social anxiety, it's like group settings or social settings would be the trigger for that anxiety. And then separation anxiety, the trigger for that anxiety is being separated from somebody that gives you comfort. And so that's why anxiety looks so different, but they're all really the same animal because they all tell people like anxiety is a big liar. You know, Mm -hmm. anxiety lies to you, says you can't handle this, but what it's telling people that can't handle are different depending on the people. And people feel like their anxiety is like even different than other anxiety. People have health anxiety. You feel like that's a quite different kind of anxiety, but it's still 
anxiety lying to you that you're not going to be able to handle health problems, right? Right. So there's a similarity in all the anxieties, but people feel like they're different and actually sometimes don't understand each other's anxiety. Like I always tell the story of a mom and a daughter and the mom's really afraid of driving in winter conditions and the daughter's afraid of getting a cold like getting sick and germs. Mm -hmm. Both of them don't understand each other. The mom thinks like, oh my gosh, my daughter is she's just scared of everything. This is ridiculous. And the daughter could drive no problem in the snow, but looks at her mom and says, and the mom's like, well, but this is real. Like you could really get hurt this way. Right. Like I could really miss school and then I would have to make up my stuff. So to both of them, that anxiety is real, but that really shows us that it could hit everybody differently but it's kind of using the same tools and tricks. And so that's what I do in my books and in my programs is I teach people all the tricks that anxiety uses to Mm -hmm. trick you, all the lies that it tells. Because then when you know those lies coming, you can see them coming and you know how to not believe them anymore. Right. If you're able to understand it and acknowledge or maybe label that, it's not as big and scary. Yes, because they seem so true and logical when anxiety says them. They're just so easy to believe. And then you feel like it's you and you confuse like anxiety's lies with like your higher voice. Like I'm going to protect myself somehow. It's really pseudo protection. It doesn't really protect you. You know, when anxiety says stay home, you can't handle that. You might be uncomfortable there. Anxiety is making you miss like opportunities and fun and adventure and and good times with people. It's not really protecting you, but it says it does. And it sounds really good (laughs) at the time. And so you listen, but it really causes you to suffer a lot more because then when you're home alone, the anxiety has all of your brain space. Mm -hmm. So do you think that anxiety takes people into fight or flight mode and anxiety is convincing them that it is a dangerous situation or a stressful situation that kind of hypes them up and then they go into that response even though there's nothing to really respond to? Oh, definitely. That's absolutely what's going on. All stress, all irritability, all anger, all embarrassment, all anxiety, all worries, they're all the same hormone. It's all adrenaline. Any upsetness that you have, it's all the same hormone, adrenaline, which is from the flight or flight sympathetic nervous system response. And so that's what's important to remember because every single symptom of anxiety is is a symptom of having more adrenaline in the blood, the release of adrenaline in the blood. Every anxiety symptom is from the adrenaline. So yes, absolutely. If we understand that system, that's why I teach people the biology of fear is because if you understand that symptom, it takes a lot of the mystery of anxiety away mm-hmm. and it kind of makes you feel more empowered because then you know what to do. Yeah. Kind of mentioned that earlier is what's the difference between just normal nerves or nervousness or maybe stress versus anxiety, like a full-blown anxiety disorder? I think those things are all undefinable. And that's the problem is that people think that there's some definition here that they have to understand to get control. And there's no definition. This Mm -hmm. is what people have to know. If you're suffering, there's help out there, right? right? So if they're suffering, there is books, there's videos, there's professionals, there's people that programs that can help you get rid of it. 
So if it's just bothering you a little, if it's in your way in your life, if you feel restricted in any way, if you're suffering at all, you don't have to know if you have a quote disorder or not. You just have to say, this is not my full life. This is not everything and I'm not happy and let me try to do something about it. And then there's definitely things to do about it. So no matter what kind of anxiety or how bad your anxiety is, there are things to do about it. And so that's what really you have to know. You could say, I have regular worries. We all have regular worries. How do we even define that and say like, okay, you should stay, even if this is bothering your life, it's just regular worries. And so you don't need to do anything of it. Just live with it. Yeah. I think we get in trouble when we try to define these things. And I think we want to define these things to know if we like deserve help or not. Yeah. Or if we could get help or not. And so that's why I'd like to break those down and say, listen, if you're suffering, there's help. And, you know, a lot of my friends and family read my book because they, they wanted to support me or they're just really interested. They didn't know anyone who wrote, wrote a book before. So like my siblings and, and they never thought of themselves as having anxiety. But when you read the book, you realize we call anxiety so many different names. Mm. And it affects us, but we call it something else. And so if we call it something else and it affects us and hurts us, then we could get rid of that too. I have a three-step process to letting go toxic stress, building that trust in yourself. You know, maybe if I call it toxic stress, people will listen to those things and get rid of it. Whatever they want to call it is fine. (laughs) Right. But let's really get rid of it because I think we need, especially now, like we need this new paradigm of making decisions out of love instead of out of fear. Mm-hmm. And, and really, we need to connect now more than any other time in history. Things are changing. And with this pandemic and everything, we need to really make decisions out of love. And so that's why I started writing about anxiety, because I really wanted people to get rid of these fear problems. But it's hard because this is a word that no one knows how to define. And they're like, do right. I have this? Everyone knows that descriptor of anxiety, but people think it's a thing. But I want to go back to let's call it the descriptor, like of how we feel. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, that yeah. totally makes sense. You're right. It's such a important message to remember because we do get into this comparative suffering where <laughs> we don't think it's bad enough to get help. Well, it doesn't look like so-and-so's problems, so they have it worse and they should be getting help. I can just willpower it out and I'm fine. Exactly. It's such a self-worth issue, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Very much mm-hmm. so. What are the biggest myths or misunderstandings people have about anxiety or even just mental health or receiving help? What are those stigmas around this subject? I think the biggest thing is like you're different than other people. Hmm. And so this, I think, grows the stigma more than anything else. And I also see a lot of mental health advocates trying to decrease stigma, but the messages were different. But this is what I'd like to say is that I think for people who are experiencing anxiety and depression, they really want people to notice how hard they work to get through each day because it is a lot of hard work to get through each day. And I think what's really important is to acknowledge the how hard they work because when they're not seen for how hard they work, they double down and defend their limitations. 
Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so they double down how different they are than everybody else. And so if they're acknowledged all the time for how hard they work and how amazing they are to get through each day, they would not have to defend their limitations. Because when you defend your limitations, you keep them. Right. So I think our best way forward to get out of stigma is to really acknowledge people for what they do, everybody for what they do, but especially people who are struggling with anxiety and depression that will make them not defend their problem as much and feel a little bit more regular, like they're a regular person. And that will really decrease. Because when you feel different on top of these problems, it causes more of them. Mm-hmm. Right, you feel separated, you feel less than, you feel unable, you feel out of control, you feel powerless, and it's just going to increase our depression and anxiety. So, I think that's a huge problem going on with stigma. I also think, like, this medical model of mental health is also increases our stigma. When the doctors say that antidepressants are just like diabetes medicine, it's just like having insulin, that is a false metaphor, and actually, back in the 70s or 80s, they made all the pharmaceuticals take that metaphor off their websites, off their printed marketing, but they still could say it verbally, I guess, because you still hear doctors and mental health professionals telling their clients that the intention is to get rid of the stigma, to help people get stigma. But the message in there is you can't. It's like, this is a problem you'll always have. The diabetes metaphor and the depressive metaphor, they don't line up in any way. (laughs) Like none of it is similar any way, shape or form, but people are still touting it and it helps in some ways, but I think overall in the long run, it's really hurting people. Interesting. That's very interesting. They're going to keep feeling more worthless and powerless. And I see it overall really hurting people. Wow. So how do you think social media is affecting our mental health? So I think three ways. I think three ways it's increasing our emotional health problems right now is that one is that there's comparison. It's a comparison culture. So you Mm -hmm. see other people having these really great times and then you're different than them. It increases your judgment of yourself, your negative judgment of yourself. And then the second one is we're exposed to trauma from very far away. We're exposed to all these random acts of violence that is really, really scary. And so that is huge. For when bad things happen, we were present in the situation, we could do something. And now things are happening very far away and we feel ever more helpless, powerless and pretty worthless. And then the third one is I think commercialism. Like there's so much advertisement on there teaching us that we should get stuff just for being us. We should just get stuff because we deserve it. Mm -hmm. And there's no like cause and effect. And all three of those things, there's no cause and effect. So we don't know we have to take initiative or use our personal agency to get what we want or what we need. And because we're losing touch with that, we're losing touch with our skills. Mm -hmm. And when we lose touch with our skills, we feel helpless, we feel unable, we feel inadequate. And that's totally increasing our depression and anxiety. And then you have these discourses like that's a mental illness and you have to deal with it forever. But it comes from our culture. It Mm -hmm. doesn't come from this chemical imbalance. That's a false metaphor as well. I think people still really think this is true. I was doing an interview the other day and someone was like, well, what about the chemical imbalance? People really believe this metaphor of a chemical imbalance that pharmaceuticals use to sell. And I'm not against antidepressants. I think they're a tool that Mm -hmm. saves people's lives. So I'm not against them. But some of the marketing is really skewed our opinion about what's going on with our mental health. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. And so chemical imbalance, now we know that hormones cause all of our emotions, right? 
Right. And our emotions are making our hormones go up and down. So the chemicals are talking about is hormones. The hormones don't sound as scary. Chemicals sound really scary. <laughs> but our hormones, so they're talking about our hormones, and hormones are changing constantly, moment to moment in their body. There's no balance of hormones anywhere. I mean, they just are constantly in flux all the time. And we do have control over changing those with our thoughts, with our actions, with the people we are around, with our context. We have control over those hormones. They're not this imbalanced thing that gets balanced. That metaphor just doesn't hold any weight as well. Hmm. So I'm curious to know your opinion. There's a lot of talk around teens and social media and their development and that affecting their mental health. Do you think social media is affecting teens greater than any other age group? Or do you think it's affecting adults and teens the same way? That's hard to know. I mean, I think it's definitely affecting adults and teenagers, all of us being on our phones so much. Maybe there's the electric magnetic field that's affecting us as well. Also, it's removing us from personal interaction. So that's happening on all levels, especially teenagers. I think we grew up with personal interaction. So teens, that's heightened a little bit more for teenagers, not Mm -hmm. all teens, but some of them, they're missing out on some physical touch. And as adults, some of us have access to more physical touch than other adults have, depending on what relationships you're in. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it is affecting our teens a great deal. So it might be, it might not matter the age. It might matter how long you're on your phone a day. Right. And then what are you not doing in addition to that? And then also what kind of other contexts or experiences you have in your life. If you're really down on yourself and then you're on your phone all day, that's just going to reinforce a lot of those negative, a lot of that negative self-talk. The research shows that the more kids are on their phone or anybody's on their phone, the more their mental health decreases, their robustness or their happiness decreases. Yeah. So it's definitely a problem. The three things I outlined, but also less interaction mm-hmm. and then and less physical touch. I think we really, really need physical touch. It's underestimated, especially right now. It's like so heightened that people are not getting the physical touch they're used to getting. If you ever see teens together on a retreat and clumped together, just laying on each other, right? Mm-hmm or they're playing or wrestling, or they braving touch because they're touching their parents less. That's not Mm -hmm. as cool to be hugging your parents like when you were (laughs) little. And so they need that from their peers. And right now, they're not getting it. So it's, it's highly concerning. Yeah. With the pandemic, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as humans, we do need that connection, that in person contact and relationship. And social media was created to feel like we were connecting on a a wider, deeper level. But do you feel like it has kind of reversed that and made it so we're less social and getting that connection even less? I don't know. I think in some ways it's less because it's less in person, but there is some positives. I mean, I use social media, obviously, to send my message out to really help people. If I really thought it was that bad, I might not use it. I think there is a lot of There's a lot of positive messages out there. There's a lot of people connecting through that and those are good. And so we really need to, as parents, we really need to help the kids have a bit of a balance. They're not going to get rid of their phone. That's not the answer at this point. So the answer is making sure there's some balance so they have robust self-esteem. And once the self-esteem is higher, it's not going to affect them as negatively and they're going to have more of a balance. They're not going to be on their screens all day. Unfortunately, during this pandemic, the screen time has gone up. Mm -hmm. There's not much you could do about it, but 
It's not like we get to get rid of these devices, but it's, it's how to make teens feel better about themselves, have a lot of belief in themselves, so they have a better balance in life, connecting in all kinds of ways that they can connect. Yeah. It really depends on how you actually use social media and your phones, it sounds like. Yeah, you can use it for positive. Mm -hmm. You can use it for creativity. Like kids can make videos and put them out there. And using that creativity is great. So some people watch videos and so they're passive recipients of that. They're not using their brain. We want kids to start using that prefrontal cortex as much as they can. That's going to decrease anxiety and depression their whole life. The more we use our creativity, our problem solving. So if kids are creating content for online, that's 10 times better than just watching it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what do you believe that schools or parents can do to help support and improve kids' and teens' emotional wellness? That's a good question. Having a place for children to go at school. I was consulting with a school once, and we were talking about having a few faculty members that could put like a smiley face on the door, and kids know that that's a place that you could go and talk to. Mm-hmm. You know, have that all over, over the school. We were also talking about doing some callbacks during lunch to kind of people are stressed out, and there's like a chant or a cheer for that school during a lunch hour in the cafeteria, it'd be a way to kind of release some of the negative and kind of build up some positive stuff in there. That repetition and, you know, a callback when I'm talking about. Yeah. So the third thing is having faculty members assigned to each student. So depending on the ratio in the school, every student has somebody who kind of once a month just has eyes on that kid to make sure no one falls through the cracks. Mm-hmm. And depending on, you know, some kids are fine and you know that they're fine. And so that's okay. But there's some kids who are pretty invisibly not fine. Mm -hmm. And if there was a little bit more focus on making sure those kids don't fall through the cracks, I think that could really help schools out. I mean, schools are tapped out, so it's hard to ask them to do much more, but that might be something that's simple enough to really make sure that the kids, that there is any red flags, like somebody's noticing them early on time to do something to help. Sometimes red flags are obvious and like they get the counselor knows and they get it. But sometimes there's a lot of kids that are falling through the cracks there mm-hmm. that are struggling. Who doesn't necessarily know about it? Right. Yeah. So what about parents? How can parents support their kids' emotional wellness? I think keeping that, those lines of communication open are one of the most important things you could do. If you are up to date on what's going on with them and their friends, it really helps. Then the kid could just give you the update without telling you the whole story. So if you always stay updated on what's going on with everybody, then they're going to want to kind of continue. You know, you have a friend and they know everything and Mm -hmm. then you're like, oh, I have an update for you. It's so much easier to tell an update than to like start from the beginning. And so as parents, we want to be in the know so that our kids just have to update us. And even when they're a little bit irritable or something like that, it won't be, it's not like tedious to go through the whole thing. So keep that line of communication open. Listen a lot more than you talk. Listen for a really long time because you want to be in the know. Sometimes parents want to give advice too fast, but kids sometimes just need to talk. And you've already taught them so many skills. So you just want them to talk. And sometimes they could just talk their way right around the problem and figure out their own skills. And you want to give them an opportunity to do that. Unless they ask you directly, what should I do? Then you could brainstorm those things. But if you try to fix stuff too fast, they're going to stop talking. 
Mm-hmm. And so you, it's the same thing with anyone. You want to keep those lines of communication open because if anything's wrong, you'll know about it first. Yeah. So what are the best coping skills for anxiety or mental health struggles? The biggest obstacle to being emotionally healthy and content and happy is believing that you can be that. Mm-hmm. You know, people think that there's happy people and then there's sad people, but the happy people generate their own happiness. Like every day they have to do things to generate that happiness and keep it going. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest myth is that we think that I'm sad and everyone else is happy. And the sad people are like, I don't want to work hard. That's not fair. It's not fair that I have to work so hard to be happy. But if you knew everybody was working to be happy, you don't feel so different. I think the first thing that we have to do to get the message out to help people feel better is help them believe that they can, that Mm -hmm. it is possible for everyone to feel better than you're feeling, that you definitely have the potential. And actually you have so many more skills than you think you have. So connecting people with their skills, number one, having people connect with their personal agency in life, that they're an agent, that they could respond to everything. That's what anxiety and depression removes from the person. They feel powerless, hopeless. They feel worthless. They don't know they have any skills. And so that's really the important piece. As adults, we have to teach our teens this. That's really the hugest message of this book for teens. So my book for teens, the title is Anxiety, I Am So Done With You. (laughs) As a teen's guide to ditching toxic stress and hardwiring their brain for happiness. Everything a teen needs to have a really robust mental health. So when is that book coming out? That book's out July 21st. Go and get it. Go on Amazon, order it, and it'll just show up when it's released. That's awesome. Okay, I will link that in the show notes below for sure. It feels like if you don't believe you can feel happy or feel well and mentally okay, that whatever coping mechanism you're trying, it might not help. It might not relieve those things because you don't believe it can exactly. or that you're worthy exactly. of feeling better or you're worthy of being happy. That is so important to get over that barrier and realize. So how did you cure your anxiety? Well, I have the six step process. You know, you could get that book for teens, but I also, my main book for all ages is you won anxiety zero. You won anxiety zeros, but it's a six step process. So the first step is understanding it biologically I refer to that already. Second is learning the lies that it tells. We refer to that. The third is cultivating your control, so connecting to your personal agency. Mm -hmm. The fourth step is forgiving yourself because when you don't like yourself and you don't trust yourself, you don't believe you could handle anything, and that's ripeness for anxiety. And so you really have to make peace with how you see yourself. And then the fourth one is doing affirmations, like repeating strategic affirmations, like changing our beliefs. Mm -hmm. And then the sixth step is practicing self-care. So keep generating that and practicing that every day. Those six steps are outlined in my anxiety courses and in that book. Awesome. So if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you tell yourself? I tell myself that things work out okay. All the things that I was worried about when I was 13, that nobody likes me and I'm dork and spastic or whatever, it all works out okay. I think that's the message to give people. I think so many adults tell kids, this is the best time of your life. You should be enjoying it. Mm -hmm. That's not true. (laughs) When we tell teens that and they're struggling and we tell them that, it is freaking scary. Right. To think that this is the best time of my life and I'm struggling. It's all downhill from here. 
Uh, no, it totally gets better. It absolutely gets better. And it's got tons and tons of potential to be better and better and better. And you have control over that. I love that. That cultural message that your high school years, or your teenage years are the best time of your life. It kind of puts that pressure and that expectations that it has to be this picture perfect thing. And so when it's not, or when you're having a bad year or a rough time and you're struggling, like you feel like a failure and you feel like you're not living up to what you're supposed to be doing and the shoulds and all of those cultural messages. Exactly. Exactly. So what do you want listeners to take away from this episode? What would you say to someone else struggling? I would say that you have so much more potential than you think right now. And there's definitely ways to help. You do not have to stay here. Come on over to my website, check out all I have for you because let's get you better. So I usually close my episodes with a little song recommendation because I think that music is very powerful and lyrics can really speak to our soul. So do you have a song that deeply resonates with you and your story? Let the sunshine in because anxiety makes us feel so dark and like our world so clouded, but the sun's behind those clouds. And we wanted to come in. So I think that's the sign. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. I really appreciate it. And I think that you have a lot of helpful things that will be beneficial for the listeners here today. Thank you all for listening. Awesome. That's all we have for you. Thanks for listening and tune in next time. I hope this podcast left you feeling empowered, better understood, and less alone in this crazy thing called life. If you like what you hear, leave a rating or review and share it with your friends. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.